Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, Commit to Safety. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm Jim Starnes, one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined with... Andrea Parker, the better co-host. Why do you always got to be better every time? I don't understand that. Well, you got to step your game up. Whoa. All right. All right. Well, I'll do my best. So what are we what are we going to be talking about today, Ms. Parker? Well, we got a lot. And it's been a long time since we even talked to each other virtually. It's been I so know. much going on with a spot with our I missed you too. Oh. And we haven't had a podcast in I don't know how long. Very long. Not even this year. Right. Not even this year. So I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I've been talking about a lot of high, uh, fit of language with my students, but it's like we haven't talked since forever. I know. And that's how I feel. Um, but we're back and we're back to podcasting. So we're definitely talking about the birth of the safety committees mm-hmm. to making sure that as teachers and students face into the school buildings to make sure that everybody entering to the building is safe and we can, again, contain the spread of COVID-19. Um, and the focus will be primarily on education. We're also going to talk with uh, our Deputy General Counsel of Chicago Teachers Union, Thad Goodchild, as he talks about the wins that teachers have gained because many teachers were threatened with discipline over our reopening campaign. So that's another discussion. That is another discussion. And you remember that, you know, initially CPS didn't want to give us any kind of safety protocols at all. They wanted everybody back in August. Right. And we fought against that. They tried to force the clerks and techs back in. We had to go to court over that. Got a couple arbitration orders saying they only had to go in one day a week. Yes. CPS wasn't really good about honoring that. Still in writing, though. Yeah, it was in writing. And there, there's still there's still fights about that. And then this year, they wanted to force us all back again with no safety commitments. This agreement that we got is not it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than what we had. And these safety committees are really going to be what's important to be able to enforce these things within the building. Because, again, a contract or any agreement is only as good as how we enforce it. Yes. And again, it just shows you that when CTU members fight, we win. And so we don't have to fear uh, our employees' tactics. We don't have to fear anything because we got each other's backs. And so as we know now, we were supposed to go back January 25th, as Jim said, with no safety protocol, just get back in there. All right. But we fought. We stuck together. And now we're going back later with some protocols in place and with the birth of a safety committee, which we'll talk about soon. We are here with Deputy General Counsel Thad Goodchild, as he is here to talk about the wins that teachers have won in regards to the remote learning campaign in terms of getting principals off our backs. Yeah. Thaddeus, thank you for being here. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. Um, So, yeah, I can just say a few things um, in preface. I think a lot of members uh, will have heard about the fact that CPS had issued um, disciplinary allegations uh, against, uh, it was originally 114 of our members uh, related to uh, their activity uh, in connection with um, the union's campaign for a a safe collectively bargained uh, reopening agreement uh, and opposing CPS's unsafe uh, unilaterally implemented plan. Um, So CPS um, had um, voluntarily dropped uh, 59 of those cases, but was insisting on pursuing another 55. You know, there are really two things going on here. Um, the, The first is that this is really an effort by CPS to retaliate against 
some of the union's most prominent activists for improving school conditions. It's been the case for a long time that polling of CPS parents shows that they trust their children's teachers in the CTU considerably more than they trust CPS and the mayor's office. And that's been on display over the course of the past several months uh, on the question of the resumption of in-person learning as well. You know, teachers develop relationships um, with, with their students' parents. That's, that's an important part of being a good teacher, uh, especially at the elementary school level. And what you had happened across uh, the past couple months was that CPS was illegally trying to force teachers back into school buildings without any agreed upon safety protocols. And C2 members, you know, first on their own asserting individual rights to decline unsafe work assignments and then collectively as a whole union opted to continue working remotely. And 80% of the parents uh, in the school district made the same choice. And CPS's response was to lock these teachers out of uh, their virtual learning platforms, uh, consequently denying students access to their teachers. And so many teachers in this situation uh, reached out to their students' parents to provide reassurance to see if there was anything they could do to help the parents during the period of time CPS was locking them out um, and to talk about concerns over CPS's plan. And CPS's response to that has been to take disciplinary action uh, against these teachers alleging violation of CPS policies on acceptable use of technology and things of of that sort. You know, these are patently ridiculous disciplinary charges. Um, I, I think that CPS knows that and they know that the charges are unlikely to survive challenges. That was on display by the fact that CPS, you know, voluntarily dropped over half of the cases that they had begun. And of the 55 that they're continuing to pursue, um, there were some pockets in particular at at certain schools. There were um, a group of teachers at Ravenswood who had communicated with parents about um, these sorts of concerns. CPS initiated um, disciplinary cases against them. Um, And last week, um, the principal at Ravenswood um, communicated to the teachers that he was deciding not to take any disciplinary action. Um, you know, one of the important things there is that you know, there were a, a lot of parents that were quite upset uh, upon hearing that um, CPS and the, and the school was planning to discipline these teachers for being in communication. So this is, um, you know, a, an important um, development, we believe, and, and hope a, a harbinger of, of the way that CPS and principals will handle some of these other cases, um, and in any event, further evidence uh, to support um, challenges to uh, other pending uh, similar discipline that, that that we're fighting right now. So a lot of times when people talk, you've got a, a lawyer talking about charges that are leveled against people. We want to know what those charges are. These are not criminal kind of charges. These are things that CPS has said a teacher has done. So what what are some of the things they said were being done? Um, I know some of them were talking to parents and some were about uh, being AWOL. Can you explain a little bit about how that works and which ones were dropped and which ones are, are still being pursued? Sure, sure thing. That's an important point, Jim. Um, yeah, I guess the first thing to say is right now we're, we're not talking about about criminal charges. Certainly not. Um, it's also important to remember that we're not talking in any of these cases about um, termination charges either. CPS uh, has not issued dismissal charges seeking to fire anyone in connection with with any of these cases. These are all disciplinary warning 
cases where CPS uh, is trying to take lower level disciplinary action short of termination against these folks, but still things that, you know, members are rightly concerned about, especially given that, you know, this seems to be pretty clear retaliation against people for exercising their rights. In terms of um, the, 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 the different sorts of allegations that CPS made against people, there were um, in particular, a lot of pre-K and cluster teachers, um, you know, who were directed to report in person on January 4th, you know, prior to there being any reopening agreement, who, um, you know, exercised their right to decline an unsafe work assignment and to continue working remotely. In a lot of those instances, CPS um, issued absent without leave notices to, to those folks and, and locked them out. CPS agreed that they would not take any disciplinary action against um, any of those folks who they had issued AWOL notices. Um, there's separately, of course, the issue, right, of um, a lot of those folks continued to work um, remotely and CPS withheld pay for, for that work. Um, and we have pending grievances and other challenges seeking um, to secure um, the back pay that those uh, individuals are, are owed. On the other discipline cases, there were 114 cases that CPS had initiated against members, um, the, the bulk of which concerned allegations about the CPS acceptable use of technology policy um, by communicating with parents about their concerns over CPS's um, reopening plan that they were unilaterally implementing with, you know, insufficient safety standards in a variety of ways, right, um, you know, prior to our reaching uh, an agreement. And um, one of the, the, the more ridiculous um, cases that I'm aware of, uh, disciplinary um, allegations against an art teacher who had been locked out because she was working remotely, who had reached out to parents to provide uh, links to art instruction materials uh, for those folks in case they weren't able to be in touch with her while CPS was was locking her out. And CPS's response is to is to discipline her. Um, so this goes to show the just patent absurdity and ridiculous and andness and retaliatory nature of, of these um, not really being about any bona fide concern about appropriate communication with parents but rather you know CPS trying to uh, assert control and um, intimidate teachers and and and, and chill their um, ability and, and willingness in the future to speak up for them themselves, their colleagues, and and, and their students. Um, and that's why it's so important that we we stand together against these and continue to to fight them. And and so far, um, you know that 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 fight is developing and, and unfolding in uh, in good ways. And we need to keep up the pressure. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for all your support and help with all this. It's crazy. CPS is trying to make things worse for us in the middle of a pandemic while we're trying to teach kids, while kids are being stressed out and families are, are being stretched to the limit. And uh, it's it's just great that we've got CTU behind us and we've got that at, at the front, you know, fighting in the vanguard with all of us to get better resources. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate your kind words. And it's, you know, it's as always, it's the the rank and file organizing power of our union that is, you know, where the true power lies and um, and what really ends up affecting change. Members uh, need to make sure to never forget that.
All right. So we're here with CTU President Jesse Sharkey and organizer extraordinaire Rebecca Martinez talking about our return back to school and the situation that we are in now. How are you guys doing? Great. Been missing the podcast. It's been a while. Oh, oh so sweet. Well, you guys haven't been busy or anything, have you? No, not <laughs> of really. Of course not. Just a couple, couple of executive things. board meetings, possible strikes and things like that. You mean a couple of executive board meetings every day? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> on the hour, always get us just always on standby. Oh, yeah. So anyway, it has been a long time since we've had a podcast and a lot of stuff has gone on. We were on the verge of a strike. We pushed back very hard and through solidarity of our members, we got an agreement, which although is not perfect, is significantly better than the nothing that was offered from CPS initially. And I thought maybe you want to talk just maybe real brief about some of the things that we won and how we moved or what we moved to from where we were initially. Yeah, I mean, I would just start by lifting up the really, I think, incredible and courageous activism that that hundreds, if not thousands of our members participated in. Um, I, you know, I don't think we would have been in a position where CPS would have made any concessions at all to us um, if it wasn't for the fact that people were refusing to go into buildings uh, we're defying orders of the principles. I mean, I, you know, Rebecca, um, you and the organizing staff made what, like 15,000 text messages in order to organize people around that strike authorization vote in mid-January. Uh, is that right? Something like that? Yeah, more than that. It was it was just a remarkable uh, union effort. And, and I think there's a lot of ways in which the circumstance was very divisive. You, you know, clerks, technology coordinators got brought back in August. They were definitely feeling a certain kind of way. You know, then come um, our special ed cluster people and um, pre-K and, you know, again, singled out in, in like lots of ways in which we could feel divisions. The normal ways in which we're together and our buildings aren't there. And the fact that we were able to pull together and, and have a mass work refusal that, that felt a lot like a strike to run um, for over a month in which they had to again and again push back the date the school started. And, and the whole time we were able to get more stuff out of them at the bargaining table. That was pretty remarkable. And I don't want people to undersell that and, and how much of the eyes of the world were on us as a result of that and how difficult and how much courage that took. That being said, I, I think what it produced was uh, an agreement which has some real uh, some some guardrails that will help keep us safer. You know, what we'd always said was that we're not this is not about us saying we're not going back. It was about saying we want a set of things to go back safely. Now, did I want and did members of the CTU want to delay school until everyone had been fully vaccinated? Yes. It was something that turned out we, we hit into a brick wall on that issue. Um, what we have instead is a set of mitigations, which if they're followed, uh, are going to go a long way towards people, keeping people safe at school. Not everything. Um, but what we know is that if they are screening people who are sick out and keeping them out of school, if there are masks, uh, if there are proper cleaning procedures, if they've got, um, uh, if there's social distancing and people's workspaces are safe, if it's properly ventilated, if you've got a way to enforce all that, uh, those kinds of mitigations are effective. And, and that's one of the things that we've learned from the way this thing has unfolded. The, the trick now is going to be making sure just because it's there on paper does not mean it's automatically going to be there uh, in your building. And so it's, if that's going to be our next challenge. The next thing we're really going to need our union for is to uh, make sure those things that are supposed to be there actually wind up there being there in reality. So one of the things that we were concerned about, other than the vaccinations, was just making sure that once we do return, that 
everybody is in the building is doing their share. They're supposed to do their share to making sure the building is safe for the teachers as well as the students. And so um, the union has come up with safety committees. So we could talk about what is a safety committee and how does that fit into our overall agenda for fighting for safety, equity, and trust? So this is another thing we want, right, um, within the MOA, which is a big deal. Um, there's some parameters and that lays out in the MOA what these safety committees are. Um, and a lot of it is still, un, you know, unclear. And I think there's some real opportunity in uh, not having such strict, narrow guidelines of what these safety committees uh, are and can do. And so it's a committee of quite a few uh, CTU members. It's dominated by, you know, four CTU members. Um, there's the, the principal, um, uh, other union folks who are in the building, like SEIU 73, uh, one, and other unions uh, represented. Um, the engineer or building manager, like those are all the different folks that are involved in the safety committee. And we will have a training on safety committees coming on Wednesday with a lot more, you know, some specifics and then also just the reality that a lot of things are outstanding. Um, one opportunity is how do we enforce some, some parts of the contract, in particular 8B, right, which has been the most in some ways controversial and more, more difficult to get the board to stick to. Um, but like really arming our, our safety committees to be able to enforce the minimizing the number of personnel in the building, right? Which will be definitely uh, a strategy to um, make buildings safer. You know, that's what we aim to do with these trainings to really equip our members to organize their building because an organized staff that can enforce the contract and this MOA is what's going to really uh, make it safer uh, for, our, for our members and our students. You know, I think one of the things that I really liked about the way the safety committees are structured is the way it's phrased in the, the MOA is that there will be four members chosen by CTU. Not that they're just CTU members that could maybe be chosen by the principals, people who may not push back, but these can be the people that we consider to be activists and very strong members within the building who aren't afraid of this confrontation and aren't afraid to really step up and stand up for what's right for our students and our families. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. But it also creates an opportunity for a new layer of folks, right? Like it doesn't have to be the delegate. Um it can be someone who's a lot more, you know, into the the uh, specifics of what's in this in this MOA, or who were one of the members who um, was very courageous to uh, and got locked out, or or you know, or refused to go in. Right? Maybe they're one of the people that are, uh, get involved in this. So I think it just really there's some really good opportunities for our members to get involved who weren't involved in the past. I'll add that, you know, there's going to be some things which are going to be um, gray areas and, you know, gray areas can be good because they allow us to expand our reach and, and have influence over things that might not have otherwise uh, been able to push on. 
Um, but there's also going to be some things that are pretty cut and dried. So, uh, you know, for example, one of the things in this agreement is in Section 1F. It's a, it's a incorporations who reference to a nine-page cleaning and disinfecting guide. So if people ever have in a situation where they felt like their room wasn't being cleaned properly, um, you know, garbage doesn't get, get, get emptied for a week um, or, you know, spills on the floor get left there, et cetera, and wondered, how do you enforce that? Well, the answer now is that there is a document which says that garbage gets answered, you know, emptied every day, that your garbage can actually gets cleaned and disinfected once a week, um, that, you know, spills on the floor get mopped up, et cetera. Um, and that's now in writing and something that the safety committee should be empowered to enforce. So, uh, you know, I don't want to give the impression that, like, this is entirely open for interpretation. There's actually some pretty clear rules on a number of things have to do with masks, have to do with uh, uh, health screening and checks, um, having to do with the way social distancing works. Those things are actually like in black and white in an agreement. And if we follow those things, uh, it means that school is going to be a lot safer. Well, speaking of the, the duties of the safety committees, what, what particular issues are these safety committees particularly well suited to address within the building, particularly as it's going to relate to enforcement of these issues? I mean, there'll be a bunch of things. Um, let me just start with one that I know is on a lot of people's minds, which is ventilation. Truth of the matter is that a lot of CPS schools actually are pretty well ventilated. I mean, I know it's something that we don't think about much, but these are buildings that were built in the 1930s. Um, the architectural style was influenced by the last pandemic, which was, you know, which was at the end of uh, World War One. And so, you know, there's a reason why these schools have walls of windows and 11 foot tall ceilings and huge amounts of volume. And that's because, um, you know, you open a window a little bit at the top, you, you know, you don't have to open your window a foot and a half in order to get ventilation. You open a window a little bit at the top and then a little bit at the bottom and it creates an airflow. And that's actually effective. Now, but if the heat is out, so there's no air blowing in your room. And then it's so freezing cold, you can't open your window. That becomes an issue. And so um, that would be something that you'd want to go to your safety committee about, where you'd say, um, you know, I can't, I can't use this room. I'm not teaching in this room. It's not, it's not safe to be in that room um, because there's no heat, which means I can't open my window in order to have a comfortable temperature, which means there's not going to be air, any airflow. And this is an agreement that says that rooms that don't meet the standards shall not be used. So, you know, I, I think there's going to be a number of really concrete building type situations that come up. Um, principal doesn't have an adequate staff for the health screen. You know, uh, so, you know, there's kids coming in that haven't been screened. Well, you know, keeping kids out of the building who are sick, that are, that are showing symptoms, that's a basic health and safety thing. You know, it turns out that a kid who's asymptomatic, who's wearing a mask, who's six feet away from you, is not that likely to spread it, even if they have it asymptomatically. But a kid who is symptomatic, you know, or who's not wearing a mask, this is a problem. And this is the kind of thing, again, that, that I think members are going to have, a, you know, have, have a lot of ability to... Um, you know, we've, those are rules that are in black and white, and we're going to have a lot of ability to shut down those practices if we're vigilant about it. Uh, that sounds good. I feel like it's a lot more opportunity, again, for teacher leadership in, in different types of ways and just to be able to make sure that um, school administrators and everybody who's working to keep the building safe are held accountable. Um, because many custodians, again, I mean, most schools, the custodians, they are not under the guise of the principal. They are contracted out. And so the principal doesn't have a whole lot of, they're not, the principal's not the supervisor of the custodian. Um, so what I'm thinking about also now is I want you to be able, you or Rebecca, to be able to describe the organizational structure 
and moving up the chain. If resolution doesn't happen at the lower level, what's next? The school level and citywide. Um, how do we make sure that people are accountable on the different levels? Mm-hmm. And let me just add something on, on that custodian issue. Um, CPS supposedly hired 400 additional custodians. And, and you know, people need to understand, um, you know, the Board of Ed got hundreds of millions of dollars of additional funding to be able to run schools during a pandemic. And, you know, our obligation is to make sure they spend that to keep our schools safe. Uh, and if there's a situation where, where a school can't keep up with a, with a cleaning schedule, you know, our job is to complain about it. Uh, and if the municipal says, I don't have the staff, then that brings us to the next step, which is that um, school level safety committees report to a district level safety committee, uh, which I'm on, um, which they had CPS's head of facilities is on, which we have uh, three other union staff on and then three other people on the board. And um, that committee's job is to respond to school level issues within 24 hours. Um, to to resolve issues. So, you know, something as straightforward as the board is not living up to its own um, cleaning standards, um, they've got to assign another custodian to the school. They're going to have to, like, actually solve the problem. Um, that's the basic structure, which is that at a system-wide level, we there's, there's an, a body whose job is to solve problems quickly uh, and which has the authority to do that. Now, that's not saying that there might never be a, a, a conflict that comes up. You know, like we're saying the situation isn't safe and they're saying it is. Uh, and that could potentially lead back to a conflict. You know, they didn't give us the keys to say, okay, you guys run the district now. That's not what they did. Um, but having a safety committee at a local school saying this isn't safe and having the union people on a, on a district saying this isn't safe, it's going to have a big impact on, on, on the way parents see it, on the way the city sees it, et cetera. And I just think like, that's important. We don't know what's going to happen with this virus. You know, there could be another um, surge, you know, which we think is dangerous, which they say, oh, it's safe. Don't worry, you know, stay in. And, and we're seeing differently. I, you know, we might have to go back on our ability to, to take direct action again. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, let's keep ourselves uh, in the game mentally. Let's, let's try to keep our solidarity up. Let's, let's try to stay um, vigilant. Safety committees and a safer building is going to happen if rank and file members at all levels from the clerk to um, clinicians, counselors, um, teacher assistants, everybody in the building will have to actually, you know, uh, take an active role in being vigilant, in uh, reporting any kind of issues, and, um, and trying to handle that internally within your building with your principal, right? And I do think that like the, the safety committee needs to act like the legitimate source and the trusted source of uh, safety measures in the building, right? Like they are the ones who are saying it's a safer space or it's not, right? And being able to take action when it's not or it's being or, or it's falling on deaf ears, right? And that can mean internally taking action with parents um, or, or others. Um, and also taking it, you know, to the district-wide committee that Jesse just talked about. So again, rank and file membership and their involvement and ensuring that this MOA is enforced and these safety committees are up and running and functioning is going to be essential for the success to keep our building safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to add one more thing too. Um, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for division, um, for you know petty grievances that can grow into resentments that can grow into, you know, fractious and fractions and fights. And I mean, 
you know, we want to avoid a situation where, you know, we're turning each other in for poor mask wearing or for other kinds of things. Um, we want to develop the ability to say to each other, hey, keep your mask on right um, and have a upfront conversation about that. We want to avoid the situation where someone who is in person resents someone who has an accommodation um, because you're in the building and she's not. Um, and then we want to um, avoid a situation where someone who has an accommodation for remote work resents someone who's in the per in person because the person who's in the building has six students and the principal is trying to give you 50. You know, that's a problem with the principal. That's not a problem with your coworker. And, you know, I, I really do think we're going to all need each other. It's, it's going to be pandemic school. It's going to be a mess. You know, I, our opinion was get people vaccinated, you know, or start with people who want to come back on a voluntary basis. That's the way you should be running school or do not want to do that. Um, they've got a very united kind of ruling class opinion. They've got the, all the newspapers in the country. They've got the, they've got the CDC and, um, you, you know, the Chicago Department of Public Health and they've got their experts lined up and there's a particular kind of line about this and that's what they were going to do. And, you know, our, our union fought a hard union fight, but at the end of the day, um, the board runs the schools. We are going to have to do our best to be supportive. And, and I, I'll just say that, like, the place where this is, there were, to me, I see this being the hardest, the trickiest, is, like, when it comes to accommodations. You know, you've got a principal saying, well, I need, pe I need people in my school because there's going to be kids in there. Um, and you've got us saying, uh, well, I don't have anyone in front of me in my class. So I don't want to be, you know, I shouldn't have to be in the building. Um, and then you've got someone else who maybe does have kids on their roster, but it has as an accommodation. And I just think we've all got to find solutions that are practical, um, argue for them. Uh, the principal's often going to be wrong in this, but not always. Um, and try to like keep people together with their coworkers and, and make arguments for what makes sense. Uh, our union is going to have to have, it's going to have a bunch of, you know, tough fights, you know, around accommodation and, and issues around that in particular. And it's going to be, have to be something that we, that we keep an eye towards our unity when we do it. And one of the things I wanted to ask about was, you know, you had, uh, I think Rebecca just mentioned about taking action and how we're going to take action. So what happens in my building, let's say I notice nobody's doing health screeners at the front door and we meet with the safety committee. And we're like, hey, you got to get this fixed within 24 hours. And let's say I've got a difficult principal and they're like, screw you. I don't have to do anything you say. Now what? What do I do now? I can't wait for a grievance because like, you know, it seems like it's set up like a PPC. And PPC is, you know, one of the big fights they, they have got is if they can't enforce the contract directly, then we go to grievance. But this is not something we want to go through a whole grievance process, right? Right. That's right. I mean, you go directly to the district safety committee. You say um, principal's not running health screens and the district committee has 24 hours to respond to that and fix that. Probably that looks like a phone call from um, the head of facilities, um, a lawyer and, and me to the principal that says you got to do this or um, or, and, and, or frankly, like, you know, this would be a situation where we tell people not to report into the building. So keep your good winter jackets because, you know, we, we, we might not be done teaching out. <laughs> um, no, but, but seriously, there, I mean, there has to be – the way this is written is that the district committee has the power to enforce basic rules like that. But it's CPS. There's going to be situations where they don't. And, and, then, um, and then ultimately, like with any labor agreement, what it ultimately is about is about our, our ability to withhold our labor and act collectively.
The only thing I would add is that I think, you know, CPS spent a lot of energy trying to prevent our members uh, from talking to parents, like hardcore, try to prevent to like the most basic thing that teachers should be doing, which is talking to parents. So like, I think, you know, the, the communi- communicating with parents about, you know, how these protocols um, may or may not be getting uh, followed, I think is also key, right? And having those good relationships with parents, with the LSC to say, hey, you know, you should know the safety committee, the legitimate uh, committee of like safety in this building is identifying these major issues. And so I think also figuring out how to collaborate with the local school council and other parent groups in the school is also really important. That's a great idea. This is the thing I thought was the most important through the whole struggle we've had is, you know, I've seen all these polls about who supports what or this side or that side. But the biggest poll, I think, is how many parents have kept their kids out because we said it was not safe. The district was saying everything's safe. If you believed the district, you would just send your kids back in because why wouldn't you? There's only one group that was saying that the schools are unsafe the way they are now because there's no mitigation strategies or there hadn't been any mitigation strategies. And that was us. And it was 80, wasn't it 80% of the parents or so kept their, kept their kids remote? Um, I think that's such a strong endorsement for how parents trust us in the schools. I think that's another big spot, like Rebecca was just saying, that we've got to get with the parents because they support what we have to say and they believe us. It's also really a failing mark on the district for understanding people's psychology during a pandemic. I, I mean, I, I'd like to think it's parents listening to us. I think it's probably also parents just saying, I, mean, I know how CPS is. I, I know how the, I know what the conditions are really like in these buildings. Uh, you know, and, and the reason I point that out is because um, I, I do think that as educators, we, we, we need to be the ones who own and have something convincing and concrete to say about what students need and about what constitutes well-being and learning for our, for our students. And that's going to mean, and, that's, and, and going forward, that's going to mean we want CTU activists who are listening to this to come forward with our ideas about what do we need to make remote learning better and what do we need to make hybrid learning better in our classes. Um, you know, it means safety is, is critical and it's going to be important important that like we don't stop offering education to the people who aren't there in the building um and you know and what technology do we need what additional staffing do i mean i said there are hundreds of millions of dollars available to the district to 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 do this project um what are the things that we need to make it work really i mean staff might be incredibly important and useful um you know someone extra in the classroom to help while i um while i'm checking in uh, with my remote students you know, while I've still got people in, in, in my classroom doing something, uh, you know, it's et cetera, et cetera. So I, by the way, that's not just true for classroom teachers. That's going to be true for our PSRPs. That's going to be true for people who work on the, the um, physical education committee. That's going to be true for people who work you know, in the clinician space. Like, um, I also think we need a little bit better of an inventory of the students that are having the hardest time. And thinking about how we reach out and help and, and help some students, you know, I don't know, like you know, you're a social worker and there's a student who you used to be able to talk to, and suddenly the student won't talk to. You. Well, I don't know, maybe they won't talk to you because they're in a small apartment that you know, and they have a hard time talking. One, there's well, the person that they wanted, like that they're worried about, is in is in their apartment with them, or um, you know, maybe there's people who who you know for whom the connection has been really hard. Shoot, my eighth grader is having you know 
this, this is a age where all he thinks about is social peers. He's a mess. Um, so, you, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess the point is that we have been kind of like emphasizing the need for remote learning to an extent where I think that like we should do some honest, you know, checking through and inventorying to make sure that if there are students that that, um, that need services, that we are also thinking about how we can provide services to students and still have it be safe. Well, thank you to our president, Jesse Sharkey, and to one of our CTU organizers, Rebecca Martinez, for being a part of the show and talking about the importance of safety committees. So again, if you are in a school, if you are a teacher, please get a part of it. Again, it's not something that you have to do. It's something you get to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to our latest episode of CTU Speaks, Commit to Safety. Mm-hmm. If you are a new listener, we want you to be a faithful listener. And if you are a faithful listener, please tell somebody, tell a colleague, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, mm-hmm. tell even your enemy. So if you want to subscribe to our podcast, please do so. We are at all the popular podcasting platforms. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please give us a call at our number 312-467-8888. See, this is how what we do here at the Union. We back each other up. That's how we roll here, Ms. Parker. 312-467-8888. And you can reach us by email at ctuspeaks at ctulocal1.org. There you go. And until next time, We are CTU Speaks, where we speak what matters. There you go.